0: It's Yolo Kali.
1: What's up? The following program was brought to you by Yolo Kali. Keeping it weird since 1997. Oh. <laughs> Who's that? Who are you? You're not allowed to be in here.
2: Hey, yo, somebody get their grandma. <laughs> huh? 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 Ah! Now you gotta do it like this
1: what's up is back with another two hours of fully youth produced content tapping into the matters and concerns of youth in chicago
2: as well as all the crazy wacky tea sipping gossips spilling weird shenanigans that we youth get up to listen to your own risk because your mind might explode the chances are low
1: but never zero so strap in and let's get into the show
2: Hi, you're listening to the WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumping Radio broadcasting live from Studio B here in Bridgeport. This is What's Up Season 22 with today's show. Poly talks existence, resistance, and everything
3: in between. And we are your hosts, John, Maru, and Alondra. In today's show, we asked ourselves, Why is everything so political? From who we are to the way we dress, the way we accept people's views, and how we've had access to knowledge of politics and how we discuss it. We'll explore some examples of inequalities in our neighborhoods and in the LGBTQ plus community, how we react to them and some forms of resistance that we as youth are impacted by every single day. You will also hear an interview with Nicholas Joy from Pilsen Alliance and learn about the joy as a form of resistance.
0: We created this episode to make bol- politics more accessible and digestible. When we talk about politics, it can often make us think about government, laws, policies, and so much more that we don't know. But politics is everything from who we are, what we see every day, the media we consume, to where we leave. So right now we're going to talk a little bit about these intersections and how politics affect our everyday lives. Like I said, sometimes it can be a little intimidating until we're hoping that this episode breaks that barrier. Um, with us now, we have Maru and John. And just a couple of questions to get us started. What do you guys think when, we, when I say politics?
2: What I would say by politics is, when I would normally say I by politics, in my opinion, I would think of questions such as, What do we think? How do we personally react to it? How do we actually view it? And what's our personal opinion on it and not just something that we heard and interpreted?
3: For me, I feel like politics for so long has been such a like, I feel like the term itself has been very convoluted where people are like, like they hear like politics and they start groaning and they're like, ah, like, why are we talking about this? And it's like, dude, like everything is political. Like literally, whether we like it or not, our lives have been, forced into a system that makes everything political like the definition of politics is literally just like like if we look at the actual definition like online it's it's just like activities associated with the governance of a country and like you know how people are are governed basically and and like thinking about it like that I guess it can kind of be like oh well, like we're you know it's kind of like annoying I guess but no like politics has impacts like our whole lives.
0: And how do you say you guys process politics, specifically now when we're in such a polarizing era, especially with last um, the last presidential election we had? I think like you said, Maru, it can be very just like people kind of roll their eyes. So how do you process politics now?
3: I try to take a deep breath before I really like get into it. Politics is like we're talking about like very heavy things, right? Like, I think a part of me growing up, I was like, "Oh, politics is like, it's too much to talk about. But that was also the mentality that I was raised around. Like people would talk about politics without realizing that's what they're talking about, you know? And growing up, I kind of had that idea like, oh, politics is like, you know, it's too, it, I'm not smart enough to have that conversation. And now I'm like, I've had that conversation without wanting to my whole life. So I think now, like when I do have an intentional conversation about politics, what I think about first is self-care. Like I need to make sure that what I'm talking about isn't going to make me angry for the rest of the day or feel very upset for the rest of the day. Like I can talk about the truth of what's going on in the world and still come back and be grounded within myself.
0: What about you, John? How do you process politics?
2: I would say the way I process politics is through personal opinion, to be honest, like my my view on politics is how people portray themselves through their personality, because I really don't see image. I see more of behavior problems and, and people who stick by their actual politics like, oh, say, if these people, one example is racist people when they say, oh, I don't like these kind of kind of people because of their skin color. That's their version of politics because they believe in their political view that those people are beneath them racially. And it it, it doesn't have to just do with race. It could just do with behavior patterns, because anything political could be policed, just like policies, just like views. Like when they say um, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or even just the, the independent party, there's still always some conflict within those personal um personal groups each and individually because even though you might be on the same team y'all still might have different political views on certain subjects down to the detail
0: and i think also just adding on to that like even politics is involved in like how we identify and our gender our sexuality and everything in between just like our our title says right so i'm going to pass it on to maru who's going to talk a little bit about you know, protecting trans people and the whole history of this community.
3: Thank you, Alondra. Hi, everyone, and welcome. So today I want to talk about protecting the trans community. Today's segment is called Protect Trans People. And it's really dedicated to uplifting and supporting trans people from all over the world, of all ages, of all backgrounds. Um, Often... You know, we talk about trans people as though it's like a separate or other group. Well, I'm, you know, me speaking, I'm Maru. I use they, them pronouns and I am trans. And I'm also Indian. I know firsthand the struggles and challenges that come with living in a world that often refuses to accept and value us for who we are. But I also know that the history of trans people is is so rich, is diverse, it's resilient um, inherently, and that we've been been, you know, a vital part of societies across cultures, across the world, across time periods, beyond this one. Contrary to the myths and lies that are often spread about us, being trans is not a new phenomenon or ideology. Trans people have existed for centuries as healers, as leaders, valued members of their communities. In fact, before colonization, many cultures recognized and respected gender diversity, such as um, here in North America, our Native American siblings recognized two-spirit people and still do in South Asia, they recognize hijras in the Balkans, they recognize sworn virgins, all different names and different, you know, identities for the trans and gender expansive experience. However, despite this long and complex history, trans people continue to face discrimination, violence, and marginalization in many, if not all parts of the world. This comes from hateful rhetoric of politicians and media to actual physical attacks and murders that have happened way too often. Trans people are still fighting for basic human rights and dignity. And I will say, even as a Chicagoan myself, this is true within the city of Chicago, where we have had several trans community members being murdered and killed. And still, some cases are seeking answers. In this segment, I just want to explore the ways that we can support and uplift trans and gender expansive community, and challenge the forces of transphobia, transphobia, bigotry, and overall genocide. We'll also delve into more of the Neo-colonial legislation that seeks to deny trans people their rights and erase their existence and compare it to the progress that has been made in many parts of the world. So let's celebrate and honor the true contributions and struggles of trans people and work towards a higher and brighter, more inclusive future for all of us. So let's start by really dispelling some of these myths and lies that are often spread about trans people. One of the most, most common misconceptions, which I had kind of mentioned um, and I grew up believing, is that being trans is a modern invention or ideology and that it goes against the natural order of things, which that couldn't be further from the truth. As I said earlier, trans people have been around for centuries. And there are countless examples of gender-expansive, gender-diverse individuals in history and mythology. I want to talk about an example of before colonization. Many indigenous societies across the Americas recognized the existence of gender-diverse individuals and regarded them as important members of their communities. Among the Quito people of what is now Quito, Ecuador, there were individuals known as Huambra Huarco, Who were revered for their spiritual wisdom and chosen to serve as leaders and mediators in disputes. Similarly, among the Inca people of what is now Peru and Ecuador, there were individuals who were regarded as possessing both male and female energy and entrusted with important spiritual and ceremonial roles these examples demonstrate the diverse and respected ways that gender diverse individuals were honored in pre-colonial societies across the Americas. It is crucial to recognize and honor these histories and resist the erasure and marginalization that colonialism and imperialism have brought upon gender diverse communities. I wanna talk about my, my own personal experience coming from these regions. I'm Ecuadorian and I, say that I'm Andean specifically. I grew up not knowing my own history, or even realizing or knowing that trans people existed in Ecuador. I grew up believing or, you know, believing that I was a woman or I was a girl. And it wasn't until I was about 18 that I could truly come out as a transgender expansive person. As I have said before, I use they, them pronouns. So specifically, I don't adhere to a binary. I'm outside of it. And until I could do my own research growing up, I would not have known that this existed or that I existed before me today. I wouldn't have known that I have had trans ancestors in the Andes. I wouldn't have known that this isn't a new thing and that I'm not like coming from just a new ideology that my that who I am is truly has truly been passed down from past trans ancestors before me but I also want to point to the fact that me not knowing these things me not being told these things growing up or being Educated about trans people, even from my own family, is an example of genocide continuing from pre-colonialization to now. How trans people have been erased in our communities, have been erased from our teachings and our histories within our own communities. And specifically like mine, my own family, instead of, you know, before how I said trans people in Ecuador were revered trans people now are attacked and seen as lesser than and often dehumanized. So before I I continue on, I I wanted to hear a few, play a few words for you um, about why this attack on trans people has continued and what really people get from attacking trans people, whether it is through, you know, social life within everyday society, to trans people being attacked through government legislation. So here are some thoughts about the attack on trans rights from Alok, pronouns they, them, who is an internationally acclaimed author, poet, comedian, and public speaker.
1: What we've seen happen in the past few years is a relentless disinformation campaign where people are peddling lies about trans people, myself included. There's been an orchestrated effort to make people believe that LGBTQ folks, and specifically trans people, are to blame. And there's a long history of scapegoating. Vulnerable minorities are told that we have some mythological manufactured power because the people who actually have power like to create it as a diversionary tactic. They give no economic plan, They give no agenda to stave off some of the biggest issues of our times, like climate change. So they distract people by making up issues like criminalizing drag, like going against the American Psychiatric Association, Psychological Association, Medical Association, and saying that trans healthcare is somehow ominous or wrong. They make up these issues to distract people. And that's what social media has facilitated, a mass weapon of distraction.
3: Now that we heard from a look, I want to continue on speaking about the attack on trans rights that they were talking about. Throughout their audio and throughout the audio we just played, they talked about how the attack on trans people is really a, a larger distraction from what actually should be, what actually should be going on and what actually the government should be focusing on in trying to help our communities. To continue, another lie that has been spread about trans people in order to destabilize destabilize our communities and continue the pre-colonial genocide is that trans people are mentally ill and unstable. This specifically is a dangerous and harmful stereotype that has no actual basis in fact. And this has also been used to destabilize, criminalize, and dehumanize the larger LGBTQIA community as a whole. In reality, being trans is not a mental disorder. It's not something that can be cured or fixed. What trans people need is support affirmation and access to gender-affirming health care. Unfortunately, many governments around the world are making it harder and harder for people to get what they need. In the United States, there has been a wave of legislation that seeks to deny trans people basic human rights. Like in Tennessee, they recently just signed two bills into law, the first that is a total ban on gender-affirming health care for trans children. And the other one is also just as heinous, prohibiting adult-oriented entertainment, which is really just a ploy to attack people who perform in drag and at some points is also used to attack trans people as a whole. Recently in Texas, there's been another bill where that can prevent physicians from providing transition-related treatments to transgender children. As a trans person, I feel deeply hurt and angry about these discriminatory laws. They deny me and other trans individuals access to essential health care and reinforce harmful stereotypes that have contributed to violence and discrimination against our community. By pref- prohibiting physicians from providing necessary treatments and surgeries, these laws put the lives and well being of trans children in danger. It is unacceptable to deny us the right to live as our authentic selves and to receive the health care that we need. These laws are a clear example of the violence that has been continuing since before colonization against the trans community and must be opposed and dismantled. What we need are legislations that protect the rights and dignity of trans people, that recognizes our complex and diverse nature we need to work together to make sure that this can be a world where trans people are not just tolerated, but we're actually celebrated for who we are and valued for the people that we are as a whole. In the United States, it is often celebrated in June or October, but Pride Month is a happy festivity for many in the LGBTQ community. But many, what many do not know is that Pride, the Pride movement in the United States, owes its existence to the tireless activism and advocacy of trans women of color, specifically Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, two trailblazers who were instrumental in the Stonewall uprising of 1969, and which was a pivotal moment in the LGBTQ history that has marked the beginning of modern LGBTQ rights. Both Marcia and Sylvia were, bo- were Black and Latina transgender women who were at the forefront of this movement, fighting for the rights and recognition of all marginalized LGBTQ people. Their leadership and bravery laid the foundation for the private movement we know now, and their legacy continues to inspire and guide our fight for true equality and justice for all members of the LGBTQ community. And it's essential that we honor their contributions and ensure that their stories are not erased or forgotten like so many communities and people before them and before us today. So let's all just do our part to protect and uplift the trans community. Let's challenge the lies and stereotypes that are used to justify discrimination and violence against trans people. Let's do the work towards a more just and inclusive society for all. And this isn't just starting with knowing people's pronouns. That is the beginning of everything. This is actually doing the research, doing the internal work, doing the challenging work that trans people have done every single day of our lives. Historically, colonizers and imperialists have sought to erase and undermine the cultural traditions and practices of indigenous peoples including those that recognized and respected gender diverse individuals. This erasure and marginalization of trans people is not just a historical phenomenon, but continues to this day in the form of neo-colonialism. We must recognize that these violences have continued on, and we must recognize that it is up to us to stop it. Together, we can protect trans people and create a world where we can all thrive, So to close out, let's hear some powerful words from our trans ancestor, Marsha P. Johnson. Let her words be a reminder that you and me, we must continue to fight on for each other. Why are you here today? Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights, and especially the women. How, how will this affect you and your job darling i don't have a job i'm on welfare <laughs> i have no intention of getting a job as
4: long as this country discriminates against homosexuals Do you have any hom-
2: thank you Maru. that was very informative background on trans history and now i will explain everyday gentrification in this spot i'm going to explain how gentrification is is affecting every everyday people with data, evidence, and examples of oppressed gentrification, and just everyday information of being aware about it. What is the definition of gentrification? Now, the real definition of gentrification on Google is gentrification is the process whereby the character of a poor urban area is changed by wealthier people moving in, improving housing, and attracting new businesses, typically displacing current inhabitants in the process but it also means the process of making someone or something more refined, polite, or respectable. How is it affecting people? We're always aware of how we do it and how we see it, but do we actually do anything about gentrification? We ask the questions, but do we take initiative action to resist this process? To answer those rhetorical questions, we need to find them in our everyday living and how we ignore this process until it catches up with us. From improving housing to making something more refined, such as neighborhoods that's being cleaned up, what we can do about it isn't really an answer, it's more about an action. That's why they say words are easier said, actions are easier said than done. And I would love to say that there's a definitive answer to doing something about gentrification, but it's simply too large and spread too far for any one person to control or even shift things. Unless we go into power and fight back against the city using equal measures and even beating them at their own game, we're all still stuck in a grasp of this monopoly like city of Chicago. Because Chicago is also diverse, it's still many people out here as citizens that don't realize how segregated the city is, even amongst other places in the U.S. So at the end of the day, it's literally in our hands and up to us to really stop the progression and keep our homes so that people don't need to relocate or even be considered for displacement.
0: You are listening to WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is What's Up. Polytox, existence, resistance, and everything in between. We are going to take a short break and be right back.
3: Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. Declare independence
1: do that to you start make protect
3: your language hi everyone we're back and you are listening to what's up this is Polytox existence resistance and everything in between In today's show, we're talking about the real world impacts of politics in everyday life and how communities locally and globally have found unique ways to resist oppression in their everyday life. Let's continue having a conversation with Johnny about gentrification.
2: For this conversation, I would like to tag in the both of you as well and just really just ask what's your personal experience or what's your personal view of what you've seen that counts as gentrification?
0: I'm from Little Village. I've lived here for the past like 10 years and my family has lived there. And I feel like we are slowly feeling that gentrification in the sense that because Pilsen is obviously being gentrified, like a lot of it is spilling over to our neighborhoods because of how close we are. And I just remember talking to my friend and like one of the things that's like such a telltale sign is like, you're seeing a lot more white people and there's also just like 26th street is the second largest tax what it, it like it provides the most revenue uh for tax uh income in the city of chicago and that's only second to the magnificent mile which has like what is it like gucci and coach and all of these like brand names and people don't know that and like it's really sad because now i'm seeing just all of these like uh family go out of business on 26th Street and now it's like they're all shutting down and all of the um, stores that I grew up in with as a little kid like they're all closing down and we don't see them anymore. And it just looks so like empty. but you're also just on the flip side just seeing a lot of like people visiting those restaurants that are still open and a lot of them are like white people and like white bicyclists and like you're just seeing a lot of that. So it's kind of like you're seeing both both sides of it at least in Little Village.
3: Uh, so, growing up, I grew up in Pilsen, and I was, like, born and raised there. I didn't move out until, like, 2019, which was against my own will. I kind of grew up, like, on one side, like, my grandpa owns two buildings in Pilsen, so I kind of grew up, like, being, right, being like, right, like, in the middle of gentrification, because my grandfather was a proponent of, as well, of gentrification, like, when I'm being honest about it, like, he was one of the landlords renting starting to rent to white people because they could pay more or like you know like starting to take housing away from like more poor like black and brown people in the in the community so i kind of grew up with it being like right in my face and feeling like i was like in the eye of the storm right like kind of like how Alondra said like she's kind of seeing it spill in from pilsen and for me i when I was growing up, I could see it spilling down from Logan Square, from Wicker Park, from UIC. Uh, so it's like, is it like listening to Alondra, I'm like, yeah, that's, we're, we're like on the, the different parts of like the same kind of timeline, because things slowly trickle. And, and it, it's really disheartening to see how gentrification has impacted so many communities across Chicago.
2: That's really informative. And I would like to thank the both of you for sharing your experiences, because even us as people, we still see gentrification, but we don't know how to process it or even put it into words to describe what we're even seeing or feeling. And to wrap this up, I would like to pass it on to Alondra with an example, even further into depth of what gentrification is firsthand with other people and not just themselves.
0: Hi everyone. It's me again. And just like John was mentioning today, we will be talking about gentrification specifically in the Pilson area. I think a lot of people have noticed the change that is occurring. And specifically now we're seeing the high rent hitch, like the the rent has been increasing so much that locals have had to been moving out. And so we're gonna talk to Nicholas Joy from Pilsen Alliance, who is a youth organizer, to discuss the changes in our neighborhoods and how gentrification is causing displacement and other types of changes. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today for WhatsApp and just speaking to us. we're going to talk a little bit about gentrification. And also, I was reading a lot of online articles and all of them kind of have Pilsen Alliance as one of the organizations that's been at the forefront. So I definitely want to get your your feedback and your opinions on this and i sent over a couple of questions but i yeah let's get started let me pull it up so can you tell us a little bit about what pilsen alliance is and what you guys your mission
4: uh yeah so pilsen alliance actually started it's probably because it's popping up in so many articles It's because they started in um Casa in like 1999 or something yeah i think 1999. And, yeah, it started around organizing around, like, gentrification and immigrant rights. And, I mean, like, that's kind of crazy, but, like, gentrification hasn't been happening since, like, the 60s, really. Like, so, and especially in Pilsen. So, yeah, so Pilsen Alliance kind of came in and comes in more so from, like, a community-based form of action. You know, like, instead of, like, providing, like, let's say, like, a resurrection project or other places, like, providing a certain type of resource... Pilsen Alliance is more so like community organizing based. So like making sure that like tenants and like people, like d- renters, all of that, like uh, homeowners know like the rights that they have um, and also are organizing like in a united effort to like push back against like, you know, um, like right now with 18th and Peoria a lot, where it's like an empty lot that we're like fighting for, like complete affordable housing, making sure that like the whole community, no matter like what what their status is, like even if you own a house or even if, you know, you're homeless, that you will have like a say in what like the community is doing with housing. So I, that's kind of like a convoluted answer, but like to like kind of give it like a neat little like wrap up, I think mainly it's like understanding that like housing and making sure that everybody is housed And making sure that everybody has fair access to housing is how we fight like gentrification and i think that's like kind of person alliances mentality when it's like coming like when we're organizing towards like gentrification and like against gentrification you know
0: yeah definitely because i remember reading an article that mentioned that like homelessness is actually pretty hard within some neighborhoods because like latinos we tend to kind of if we don't have a place we kind of crash at our friends Mm -hmm. or our family's home and so like that's not something that's being reported and it's even harder to kind of understand at least within the lenses of like of a cultural like Latinos you know which is not something Mm -hmm. that's very prevalent in in, like white neighborhoods so thank you yeah
4: yeah Uh, sorry (laughs) no go for it go for it yeah yeah, like um that's a really good point and I think too like uh, even if we look at like ancient Peoria or just any like affordable housing, like the importance of having affordable housing being more than like a two-bedroom to be like actual like family mm-hmm. home, family apartments or family homes or whatever is because of that reason. Like you'll live with your grandma or you'll live with like your Theo and your Thea like for three months and then like like you said like homelessness isn't like it doesn't and manifests in the same ways as it does in like other neighborhoods, you know.
0: Um, Exactly.
4: so yeah that's a really good point Mm -hmm.
0: okay and then I'm gonna move on to the next one and can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role within Pilsen Alliance
4: yeah um so yeah uh, my name is Nick Joy Uh, my pronouns are they them and I started organizing with Pilsen Alliance in 2019 with the summer institute that we have every year every summer and yeah it was mainly like uh in the summer institute what we learned is like the importance of organizing as a community and then also like the history of like housing justice immigrant justice like workers rights all of like like all of those like you know injustices that happened in our community lumped together in like uh in a summer like institute and it really opened my eyes up into like how all of these things are like connected. And even if we like like to admit it or not, that like we are all affected by it in some way. Even like the people who have like, a, who own a house or own a business are still affected by like all of these things. So like, that's kind of what led me to like continue organizing. And yeah, I've been organizing since then. And like the great thing about like our model is like kind of like allowing for future leaders to kind of like grow and like expand. And, and like get into the roles of like organizing and you know even if they don't do it here it's like just um like building those tools um with them and for them is like really great so i think that's also why i took on the role of youth organizer in 2021 we we now at post Lions have like a seven out of 10 seven out of ten of our board members are youth so it's also i think like In 2020, and it was brewing before that, but I feel like, um, you know, young organizers really like started to become more involved and like we saw like a huge like resurgence and like just, you know, people like organizing and like, you know, really like being down for like, (laughs) you know, fighting all of like, you know, (laughs) this system and all of that. So yeah, I think more so my role is like just fighting the fight with people younger than me and older than me as well. Um, but making sure that they have the tools to do the fighting, like simple terms, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And then I'm gonna follow up with what you said because I think it's so interesting. You kind of mentioned that seven out of 10 of the board is youth. Have you noticed that difference between like the younger generation versus the older generation? Because I feel like every time we talk about gentrification, like depending on the person, like what their like generation is like they have very different thoughts on it like have you experienced that
4: yes yes so uh, yeah that's a really good point and that's a good to get too into like our like the job that happened or or because of that cultural difference between older and younger people it's just uh, it's like so prevalent in like almost everything and like even in what like the older generation prioritizes versus like the younger generation like noticing the difference between young organizers, there's more of like um, an emphasis on like all of the things that we're talking about as like, it pertains to gentrification, like matter. Some things might not be more urgent than others, but it all like needs to be said. So like, not ignoring that like, there is also like intersections between race, skin color, you know, gender expression, gender identity, uh, class, all of like those things that are intersecting matter in the conversation. And I feel like uh, the younger generation of organizers understand that more than the older generation. And I think that's kind of like why we've been at a stalemate surrounding gentrification, because we haven't really been able to like come to like, you know, a connection with like older people who think that, who still like think that like, Oh, if we just own all of the houses, or if we just like you know, do these things that like still feed into like the system, like the capitalistic system, that we can still like mediate and like stop gentrification or slow it down, and whereas the younger generation understands like no, like we kind of have to get rid of certain structures, like uh, not to get too off the rails, but like appraisal systems, property taxes, like all of those things that are what lead to gentrification like because we learn even in the summer we learn about redlining there's this like hidden underground like um hidden underground like th- the weird taxing that chicago does specifically that's called tips um it's really convoluted but it also is what leads to like gentrification because tiff money is like collected from our pockets but funding like you know billion dollar corporations million dollar corporations. tiffs is like a really like big like a big thing that is like not taught about but it's really crazy when you like learn more about it
0: okay awesome thank you for saying that because i feel like a lot of people don't really know like how specifically gentrification happens other than like Mm -hmm. just a very simple like oh like it's a bunch of people like moving into your neighborhood and there's like way more behind it but like people aren't really aware of what that is
4: yeah yeah i totally agree i even think like even when people say well they're mexican and they're still moving in it's like well yeah like it doesn't matter like the it's not about like oh like a rich white person moving in versus a rich uh, mexican person moving in it's like the effects of gentrification still happen with a rich mexican coming in Mm -hmm. and buying a house you know so it's like it's really complicated but we again. I feel like as organizers in general, and I think historically, we've always wanted to like push like those conversations, like nuanced conversations, to the side so that we can like solve the solution.
0: What would you say mm-hmm. is gentrification?
4: Oh yeah, <laughs> gentrification. I think is it's the new form of colonization. I'll say like that, like mm-hmm. at like a simple like term. It's how you know a white colonial system learned how to adapt to like a modern world um so if you think about like gentrification as colonization you can look at like when Christopher Columbus or whatever all of those people came over here they're like oh this land is nice like this is where we want to be this is like <laughs> oh they have trees they have like nice food mm-hmm. here um so much culture right but it's at but like to make myself comfortable i'm going to you know make this lot of landmine I'm going to make it look how it looks in Europe like I'm going to do all of those things and I think gentrification ultimately at its core is how like you know capitalism keeps colonizing and keeps overtaking you know communities and like specifically about like communities of color I think like because gentrification has happened since like you know since forever like and it's not even like these communities like Pilsen or communities like Humboldt Park and all of that uh, weren't even like communities originated by, you know, Mexican people, Puerto Rican, black people, all of that. It was originated by like European co- colonizers, but because we were forced into the inner cities because of smog and environmental racism and injustice and all of that, that we've had to like adapt and make these like really like environments, like, our home and that's why we get murals we get you know churches you get all of these like like beautiful things that we adapted to our community specifically getting overtaken you know again (laughs) for a second time you know
0: right yeah and then a follow-up to that is like specifically within Pilsen because we're we're talking about Mm -hmm. Pilsen it's been affected yeah how has gentrification affected Pilsen now
4: yeah so I think one of like one major thing is like the money (laughs) like everything costs like insane amount of money like property taxes food um like i went to family dollar the other day and it was just like (laughs) like, this is so expensive (laughs) like why is a freaking pack of chips like five dollars but that's also inflation yeah that's inflation but like it's like wow like this is a lot of money to be spending on a, a basic need like Yes, chips or even, you know, I don't know. Anything is a basic need. Like, if you need to eat, you need to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, that's the main thing is, like, things are getting so expensive in Pilsen. And the biggest thing, too, next to that, like, shared is the loss of culture. Um, Things are, like, blanket, like, almost, like, candy-coated Mexican. Like, things, especially on the east side of Pilsen, like, past Mm -hmm. Blue Island, It's, like, you'll have, like, little, like, Mexican, like, structures, a colorful painted, like, business name, but it's still, like, white-owned or it's still, like, you know, rich-person-owned or there's still, like, white people, like, living in these buildings. And it's, like, well, like, now there's no, like, actual culture. Like, now it's just, you know, performatively Mexican so that, like, you know, gentrifiers can feel comfortable living here, you know, like, oh, look, it's such a nice, like, you know, mexican neighborhood with no mexican people it's like all of like the imagery but none of like the actual like guts if that's like the simplest way i could put it
0: no that makes sense because i feel like it, it's like contra- what is it counterproductive where it's like you're literally displacing all of the actual like mexican families and then you're saying my business is like is like the aesthetic of mexicans and, and yeah. like, I've i've mm-hmm. seen that and i've like seen restaurants pop up that are like Mexican inspired and you're like Mm -hmm. well like there you literally used to be a mom and pop shop that sold like tacos here and they can't afford the rent anymore which is kind of really messed up so thank you for touching on that and then I'm gonna move a little bit to like a different set of questions and in my Mm -hmm. research you know I came across the terms of like outsiders versus insiders and like that was kind of described as like people who are from the neighborhood who for example they they own a bunch of buildings and they rent out and so for them it's like making money versus mm-hmm. like corporations that come in and buy these buildings and rent out the or at least out to outsiders like do you think there's a difference there if someone who is perpetuating gentrification is like from the community versus somebody who's coming from the outside
4: yeah i think the like, difference for me is like It's more wicked when, (laughs) not to be dramatic, but it's more like wicked when like like people from our community do it, but it's not their fault. Like that's the function of our housing system in like Chicago and in America, period. It's like, that's what the incentive is. Because like you said, like if I can't afford to pay the rent on this building as a property owner, then like, I can't like, I can't sacrifice not paying rent. You mm-hmm. know, like I can't sacrifice not charging more for rent and all of that. Which that goes to like a different conversation about the issues with landlordship. But like this is what we have yeah. now. Um so like uh, approaching it from what we have now, it's like I understand that like you have to do this cuz you like can't afford it, but it's also just wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's ways, you know, that if you are a property owner, you can organize against, you know, against those like issues. And at the end of the day, it's a lose-lose for, you know, people from the community who are renting out because you're, you yourself aren't gonna be able to afford rent either. And eventually you'll get kicked out too. Your properties will get bought out by a bigger corporation, bigger developers. um, And that's again, like, and I kind of like, that's kind of like, if I were to see like, or talk to um a person from the community who has, properties it's like well you can't like sit idly by right now because it might be good for you now but at the end of the day if this if Pilsen gets bought out by like a bunch of white people it's gonna be a white community so no matter how like much money you make as a Mexican you'll be forced to like leave too because another point of like the reasons why Pilsen is a Mexican community you know um Hummel Park is like a you know Puerto Rican community or was is because like you see community like with the people you share community with like if you're a Mexican you'll go to a place where there's other Mexicans from like your town or from around your region and all of that so yeah like that's that's unavoidable like if you you can't like escape your culture <laughs> even if you wanted to you know <laughs> I don't know that was kind of a rant but <laughs>
0: no no really yeah. go for it no
4: mm-hmm.
0: and um I you touched a little bit about the intersections and specifically like the race aspect of it, but I think something that when we, when I was growing up, something that really came up when they were like, oh, like these white rich people are moving in, they're like, están mejorando, you know, they're bettering, they're improving the neighborhood. Like, what comes to mind, or what do you think that means specifically when people say, oh, like they're improving our neighborhood?
4: Um, I think it's like that need for like it's everyone's inherent want and desire for to be safe right and to be like not like at risk of anything and like at risk of like your kids being killed or like you know your kids joining gangs or stuff like that but i think that like approach and that view is like it's not it's it's kind of like flatlined like there's not a lot of like depth to that point of view it's not like looking at like a broad, broad um broad like view and like like a really in-depth view of how violence and like all of those things work, right? And going back to intersectionality, like if you are a darker skinned Mexican person or indigenous person or black person, you're gonna be policed more. So so if we put that like anywhere you go, you're gonna be policed more. and when you get policed more, That leads to more, you know, lack of community, lack of people being together. More violence happens when there's more, like, policing happening. So, like, yeah, like, it's bettering the community for the people coming in, not for the people there. Like, you're not going to be able to even afford living there. So I don't know why you're happy that the violence is going down, because you also are leaving to the places where the gangbangers and all of the violent people are going so you're mm-hmm. just doing the same thing in a different place. So yeah, I I don't I understand that view, but I feel like that's such like an old old school like way of thinking. Because now we know like what gentrification really. I don't know if all of us do, but I feel like we have a bigger understanding as a community that gentrification ultimately just displaces people, even if it were to solve violence. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And then mm-hmm. a follow up to that is like. Who benefits from gentrification, if any, and who is harmed?
4: Yeah, I think the main benefactors are the city. And that's like realty. The city is, even though, you know, the white people that are coming in benefit in some way, the main people who are making the big bucks are the developers in the city. They're the ones, you know, creating Mm -hmm. agreements with each other to put up these big, like, ugly gray houses and gray apartments you know that's, um yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and they're making the most profit from that um and the main people harmed are you know just uh, honestly almost like almost like i kind of said right now is like almost everyone who is originally from whatever neighborhood that's getting di- displaced
1: mm-hmm. so
4: and it and it leads like from the bottom up so it's like first it's like you know the most marginalized people to the least marginalized people in that group. So, yeah.
2: You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. What's up? That was the first half of Alondra's interview and our inputs on gentrification, and we'll be back after this short intermission.
3: Hi, everyone. You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is What's Up, Season 22, with today's show, Holly Talks, Existence, Resistance, and Everything in Between. My name is Maru, and I'm joined by John and Alondra.
2: In today's show, we asked ourselves why everything is so political, from the way we dress to the way we accept people's views and how we have access to knowledge of politics and how we discuss it. We have explored some examples of inequalities in our neighborhoods and in our LGBTQ plus communities, how we react to them in some forms of resistance that as we as youth are impacted on our everyday lives. You have listened to some of our own remarks about resistance, trans history and empowerment.
0: In this second half of our show, you will continue to hear our interview with Nicholas Joy from Pilsen Alliance and learn more about the joy of resistance. Yeah, and I think yeah, you kind of mentioned it at the beginning but it's like everyone gets affected not just if you're a renter but also if you're a homeowner like and mm-hmm. i feel like for a lot of people they don't really understand that they're like oh well my parents or i own a house so like we're good mm-hmm. is that not the case like how how does it like jump from that if, if you can explain a little bit
4: yeah Again, like, I don't, well, if somebody's saying like, oh yeah, my dad owns the house, like, yeah, girl, you probably don't pay the bills because <laughs> the bills are like a real thing. Like, you know, electric bill, like light bill, all of those things. Property taxes is the biggest one. Like the amount of money you're spending on property taxes. Yeah, your dad could have bought that house for 25K in 1995. But now he's, that house is technically worth 1.5 million, 2.5 million. And now he's going to have to pay taxes based off of that 2.5 million that he does not make at all. So that's that's how it works. It's like um more people who are coming in renovating houses, making like new apartment buildings are upping the prices of how much the neighborhood is worth to the city's eyes and yeah, to the city's eyes and the city is going to start taxing more on that. And also, just make living more expensive around there. Like, if you if an if a Whole Foods opened up in Pilsen, like if you're that's wiping out Pete's, that's wiping out the um, mm-hmm. Casa del Pueblo, like like all of those like like um, smaller places and the corner stores, all of that because like now you have Whole Foods and all the yuppie's and rich people are going to Whole Foods because that's what they what that's what they consume. So yeah, that's how it, affect, like, that's how it might not seem like it's wiping out, like it's going to wipe out a neighborhood like that, but it does. Like even the Giordano's, like um, there's a bar called the Penny Whistle that opened up really close to Juarez High School. And that's like fucked up to have a school be right next to a bar. But Lori Lightfoot mm-hmm. like really like sped through that um, application process, you know. For the penny whistle to open and that's how like those little things even though we don't see it right away lead to what ultimately gets rid of like the whole entire population of people you know
0: so is is there a way for like gentrification to be done ethically or is it all always going to be like displacement because i feel like you know a lot of people don't, don't like is it good or is it bad like how can it be done mm-hmm quote-unquote correctly
4: yeah I feel like in a different world it would be done correctly by like just like every neighborhood having equal amounts of resources and funding because if that was the case then mm-hmm. like I wouldn't mind like uh, if that was a case like we wouldn't like there wouldn't be gentrification if that's the real thing it's like there mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't be gentrification if every neighborhood got the same equal amounts and opportunities because like there would be no need for somebody to, because so this is how gentrification happens, like a little like quick, like it happens if there's a poor neighborhood, art students and students who, an artist, up and coming people, people who don't have a lot of money, but still in some ways benefit from some, some types of privileges, you know, like going to school, is kind of a privilege, right? Moving into working class neighborhoods, and you like renting apartments and then that slowly like they bring their friends it starts to become more of like a hip place to be and then like it's like first the hipsters then the yuppies because then the yep. yuppies are like oh look there's a white person there oh look there's a you know there's an <laughs> art center here Oh look, like there's a bar here there's like all of these things like maybe we should move here and buy us cheap property that we can flip easily and like make our own and then our friends will also buy properties around here and then that's how it kind of grows it's like a little virus like a mini virus that like eats away so i like again like if housing is accessible to everybody we wouldn't really have gentrification like we wouldn't have these like struggles you know
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah no i agree with you on that i think i remember when i was taught about gentrification i was like at first initially i was like whoa you know like these people are bringing the resources that we don't have mm-hmm. and like that's, like, a good thing, but then you start to really know, like, well, no, but, like, the, the, these should be resources that should already be available to these communities. Like, why do certain populations have access to that so easily and other other populations don't? Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads mm-hmm. into my next to my next question, is, which is, how does race play into gentrification?
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, historically, like, since, uh, like, the days of red mining, Gentrification, and I I argue housing itself was is racial, and from the start, from the jump, the people who are allowed to own houses were exclusively rich white people. Uh, so like you know, white people who own slaves, white people who own land, property like outside of their houses were allowed to have housing and to have like the housing that they chose, right. Fast-forwarding kind of to, like, the 1940s, at post-World War II, housing, like, the housing that was given off to veterans was only given to white veterans. Mm-hmm. Like, Black veterans um, weren't allowed to really, like, they weren't allowed the same privileges of, like, getting, you know, a house. And if they were, you know, banks and um, developers and, and cities would start redlining neighborhoods where they would allow you know, Black people to live. And those neighborhoods were deemed like less worthy. They weren't approved for as big of loans so that they could even buy a house. So that's how you create that like generational, you know, that generational downfall. Because if you were born in a redlined neighborhood, you wouldn't be able to buy a house outside of that. If you couldn't afford it, like completely, right? Like if you couldn't afford, like to take out a twenty five hundred dollar loan or whatever at the time. And for Mexicans, I think because we were used for so much labor, uh, throughout like uh, the history of America, and like constantly sent back. Like <laughs> they would bring, like Americans would bring Mexicans here to work while like they were at war, and then like thrown back into Mexico or not, some not, but like most, like a lot of them did. And so they also redlined for Mexican neighborhoods, you know, in LA, Texas, all of that. And I think, again, all of that, like to say is that housing itself and the way houses are appraised, the way houses are valued, the way houses are built are all racial, where they're built is racial. Like if you look at all of the uh, communities of color in Chicago, the reason why they're on the South and east and west side is because that's where the factories were and you know one the laborers were mostly mainly you know black hispanic and of course like irish and all of that but like the ones who were were able to like move into naperville and all of like these suburbs who could afford it went there and the people who couldn't you know were like purposely cast out of those neighborhoods So yeah, I I think gentrification is a racial issue and housing is a racial issue.
0: Yeah, thank you for explaining that because I I didn't connect the dots, you know, and I'm Mm -hmm. someone that like went to college and like worked on Mm -hmm. so many organizations and I'm like, now that you're saying it this way, I'm like, wow, like this makes so much Mm -hmm. sense because like, yeah, there's that undertone, but I feel like people still aren't discussing it as much. Mm -hmm. Maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally. I, you Mm -hmm. know, who knows? but then going off of that and let me know if uh, you're familiar with the term but can you tell me a little bit about reverse white flight and how that's been affecting inner city neighborhoods and how it will be affecting inner city neighborhoods
4: mm, okay yeah so like reverse like being like them coming back <laughs>
0: so yeah, yes I think- so are, are you familiar with let me just uh, I should mention yeah, yeah, pres- okay so like reverse white flight it's kind of like this notion that, like you said, like it's again, white rich people coming back into the city, whether it be because they, you know, it's very cultural, it's art, but also because it's becoming more affordable. And so mm-hmm. you're seeing like waves of people move back into the city, not just in the city of Chicago, but like Atlanta is like one of those cities that's being impacted a lot, California also, mm-hmm. Texas. So, like, there's, if you look at the census numbers, there actually has been a huge increase within those cities. And so like, my question is, how is that going to affect the neighborhoods, for example, like Pilsen and maybe even Little Village in the future?
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Little Village is already feeling it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's, again, it's not like hopeless. It's not a hopeless issue. There's things that we can do to like remediate those, like that impact. But ultimately, if like, there isn't like much done about it it is going to force us all back back somewhere i don't know where but you already see it like you already see specifically my neighborhood of it's lo, be, below west so it's called ashburn um there's a lot of puerto rican people now um more black people and more mexican people and it was already a pretty mexican neighborhood but like as you can see like the effects of gentrification in like Humboldt Park, Hilson, all of these people are being pushed to the outskirts of the city because, you know, there's, there's um, offices in the city, there's more access to like transportation, all of that, all of these like luxury things now, (laughs) unfortunately, Mm -hmm. are like more accessible in the city. And again, yeah, so that reverse white flight is going to push everybody who's living in the city out and to the suburbs, to, you know the outskirts of the outskirts of Chicago, which are away from the resources, so I feel like if we push like that idea to people that if we get pushed out, it's pushing us out away from like things that we need. You know cities are built to to be central and to be like easily accessible for people, and if we don't have that, then we don't have walkable grocery stores, we don't have walkable libraries, all of that parks, all of that you know,
0: yeah yeah and that's that's an interesting point because i feel like beforehand we had this notion of like if you live in the suburbs you're good like you have all these resources Mm -hmm. like you're you know you're upper middle class but now Mm -hmm. thinking about it you're like well but what about these resources like we you know some people don't have cars like how are you gonna
4: transportation
0: Mm -hmm. in in the suburbs like it's basically impossible
4: yeah yeah and and the suburbs aren't, like, they were very recent. I think neighborhood was made in the 80s or early 80s or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. the suburbs, a lot of the suburbs aren't even, like, I, I'm, I'm going to say real in, like, a way that it's, like, not, like, it's not uh, old. Um, So, all of these houses are deteriorating. All of these house, there's, like, lacks of, lack of water, tons of flooding because they don't have central water in the suburbs. So they're getting all of their water from Lake Michigan, and that's t- that costs a lot of money. That costs a lot of maintenance. So again, as you, you can see, kind of how like devious, you know, like gentrification really is. If you're trying to push, you know, all of these marginalized people to like these places that are harder to fund and harder to like upkeep. Like at the end of the day, like we, I can see like what they're trying to do. You know.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But it makes it makes so much sense, like that whole pushing of like, w- what are we going to do afterwards? You know, I mean, like that's that's literally the reason why we came into the city and why some neighborhoods mm-hmm. were formed and that we're forced to do that all over again and lose this sense of community that like we've built basically from the mm-hmm. ground up. OK, mm-hmm. and then this is my last question, and you kind of talked about it already, but what are the long term effects that occur in gentrified neighborhoods?
4: Yeah, I think the long-term effects is um, a rise in homelessness, a rise in um, crime, you know, a rise in, like, mental illness, a physical illness. There's, yeah, there's so much that, like, because if we look at it, like, when, like, you know, Mexicans first came into Pilsen, because of, like, um, the displacement actually due to UIC being built and, like, pushing Mexicans from the UIC to Pilsen, you can see how, like, even, like, health-wise, like, there wasn't, like, clean streets. There wasn't whereby factories that were still running. Like, there's, like, a lot of, like, um, you know, there's a lot of, like, violence that happens from, like, the state and from the government on these communities as soon as we get displaced. Because we're not seen as, like, yeah, like we're not like valued like how white people are valued. Like, oh, like we're seen as violent criminals, all of that. We start to get police more. And then it just creates like this whole environment, like mental illness is, is like to a zero and all of these things like affect us really, really negatively. So yeah, gentrification, even if it cleans up a street for, you know, the next white white person to take over your apartment building, it creates so much generational harm for like us people of color, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think people don't kind of realize that, that that mental health impact. And like you were saying, like that generational, even in a sense like generational trauma that's happening. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, displacement doesn't necessarily just mean like your physical, where you are physically, it can be like Mm -hmm. where you are emotionally. And I think
4: like, thank you so much for bringing that up. I think the one thing that like is the most important thing to like the viewers and everyone is that it's not your fault if you didn't know these things or weren't aware of these things or like weren't taught like this was all purposefully left out of like our education as people of color like this was all purposefully pushed to the side not talked about not like communicated to us so that we can just go with the flow But the main thing with like any type of like disruption is you're going to like getting the knowledge, but doing something with it. Like you haven't, you get the knowledge, you get like, okay, this happens because of this. And now with that knowledge, it allows like us as a a community to like really like, you know, like to voice our concerns and voice like, you know, our discontent with like the system like it even though it feels hopeless to like think of all of like these things like how like how kind of like um negative it's going to impact us and all of that it's not like it's not hopeless like there is possibility for change and the biggest thing that like the city would hate is a unified community that's why they like put us in jail that's why they like purposely make us like hate like queer people black people Uh, make us hate like a bunch of like different things so that we can like be separated and be like fighting each other instead of fighting the greater issue you know
0: yeah no definitely Mm -hmm. and and thank you so much for saying that because I feel like unity is what makes us stronger Mm -hmm. and everywhere we look we're being separated either by Mm -hmm. race by gender by sexuality and so like Mm -hmm. thank you so much for bringing that up because that is that is so true and I hope like if anything, like our viewers or listeners at least get that point and they understand like why mm-hmm. we need to do that. Thank you so much, Nick. Uh, These are yeah, the only questions you. that I had. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. if you want to just let us know, how can people get involved with Pilsen Alliance or anything that we like events
4: that you want to share? Yeah. So, so, okay. There's a couple things. So this summer, there's going to be the Summer Institute. So if you know any young folks around Pilsen, Little Village. Uh, even Brighton Park, McKinley Park, um, that would be interested in like learning stuff like this, like that we're talking about now. Um, that application usually opens up around May. So look for out for it on our socials, at Pilsen Alliance, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and at Pilsen Alliance Youth Committee on Instagram. Um, and we post the applications there. Um, and also this May, Around like Mole de Mayo, like that time, we are going to have a youth joy event. And it's just to have like more joyful, more joyful, like events and community involvement in Pilsen to bring like um, more youth together. All, after all of the stuff that's happened and all of the stuff that's still happening, it's like really important that, you know, one of our biggest forms of rebellion is like being joyful and being like happy and like really like living your life. Um, So that's why, like, I kind of wanted to have, like, that event for youth.
0: That was my interview with Nick Joy from Pilsen Alliance, discussing gentrification in Pilsen and a brief history of gentrification itself. And now for this next segment, we are joined by Maru and John to talk about using joy as a form of resistance. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about heavy topics such as politics, a lot of people get intimidated and overwhelmed or just shut down the conversation completely and don't have any conversations. But something that Nick mentioned that I really loved was that joy can be a form of resistance. I've always thought that fighting the system meant doing the hard work, like protesting, showing up physically and doing a lot of the hard work. But now in today's world and society, there's so much more to worry about and so many injustices that sometimes it could just be overwhelming and people don't want to put the work in. So when we hold that space to just be happy and have that joy, regardless of all of these injustices, regardless of everything that's happening in the world, that's when we have this form of resistance in a society that just oftentimes doesn't give certain populations that form of joy or that space to feel the joy. Particularly, I want to say that a lot of this withholding of joy and happiness occurs in Black, Brown, or Indigenous, or queer, or intersections of people who identify with a lot of these identities. So I definitely wanted to have this, this discussion today because we are talking about such a heavy topic and so like I said people kind of shut down when we have these conversations or when we are forced to have these conversations there's really no follow-up to that and people just kind of leave the conversation where it was and so I want to make sure that we are emphasizing that this is how we fight the injustice in politics and this is how we are making that change by creating that small change in our everyday lives In the people that we talk to, the people that we hang out with, and making sure that we are still having those moments of happiness and joy, and despite of people not wanting us to. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit with Maru and John about that. And I have a couple of questions for you guys. So, what comes to mind when I say that joy is a form of resistance? I feel like a lot of people haven't really heard that or aren't really aware of that. And you know, the whole purpose is to make sure that we are feeling this joy and happiness in everyday life. So what what was the first instinct when I say joy is a form of resistance?
2: I'm gonna be honest. Um, it might be a bit heavy to talk about, but you see it a lot in the movies with uh, African-American actors in slavery. I would say even with the segregation, when they would be like, Joy is a form of resistance by singing, clapping, being happy. They would be like, I'm not telling anybody they need to go to church, but that's what they, their joy and form of resistance was. They believed that white people also believed in the same God. So they were like, you know what? Let's sing and praise our, our, our Lord, where we came from and how he made us. Just stuff like that. Like People were literally singing and clapping and, and, and enjoying, be, enjoying being themselves while still living while, while being oppressed at the same time. And it still happens today, like with the, um, like with the cop city that's supposed to be happening in Atlanta and how the protesters were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. They were literally just protesting. That was about it. And I will also like to hear more about everybody else's opinion on stuff like that too. Cause it not, it doesn't have to just be like singing and stuff like that.
3: To go off of what John said, um, about the defend the forest movement in Atlanta uh yeah that that's an example because they were literally having a music festival and the cops came and basically shut them down arrested like over 20 people on domestic terrorism charges and were like literally pointing their guns at families and children and inside like a bouncy house like they were literally just trying to have fun to resist and for me this also brings to mind like the no cop academy movement here in chicago the campaign that was really nurtured and brought by black and brown youth across chicago like they were literally like having protests where they played music and sang together and marched down the streets but they were still having fun together doing it um fighting something that is so vital to our lives and another example for me would also be the ballroom culture uh, that was, you know, started in New York in like the twentieth century, like around the 1990s, um, That were like was also founded by like Black and Brown LGBTQ plus people, who you know had to create their own spaces to, you know, do balls and to like have fun, to dress up and to be themselves. So I really feel like joy, as you know, a form of resistance is really like embedded, like John said, in like just our everyday lives we just kind of have to to look for it and to remind ourselves that it has always been there
0: and then following up on that what is something that you do that brings joy to your life I feel like especially now we're having a hard time with the pandemic and just everything that's happening around us what uh, what do you do to bring joy into your everyday life
2: I'm be honest, I do nothing, absolutely nothing. When things get stressful, I go to the lake or I go for a walk and I just sit and I just stop thinking because that's Mm -hmm. that going back to that work mode, that work life. Yeah, that work life and your your personal life. And I'm like, work life just got me stressed continuously where I feel like I got to take care of everything. And I'm gonna be honest, literally just taking a second to just breathe is, is all I need to just be joyous because I'm like, I'm not stressing about anything and I'm just breathing.
3: Yeah, same for me. I think just being able to like ground myself and in what I actually want to do every day, I think is like making music, playing music, going to the lake, like John said, It's just really enjoying those things that people would see as like small pockets of happiness and instead of making them pockets, just make them, you know, my whole world.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much to both of you for sharing that. And Yeah, it's been just really nice to kind of get that talking about feeling joy in a world that doesn't really want us to feel joy.
3: Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Alondra. Today has been such an informative and illuminating episode. We hope that this conversation on politics and resistance has inspired you to think about the real world impacts of politics in our everyday lives and how we can find unique ways to resist oppression and nurture our joy and happiness through anything that we do. Thank you to our hosts, myself, John, and Alondra, and our guest, Nicholas Joy from Pilsen Alliance. This has been What's Up with today's show, Polytalks, Existence, Resistance, and Everything in Between. Thank you for tuning in to WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lump Radio. We appreciate you for listening, and we can't wait till next time. And I hope that you can find a little piece of joy for yourself.
1: And that's the conclusion of our program. Brought to you by the fine folks at that... Oh, not you again. No. Hey yo, who let her
3: back in? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wrap.
0: We hope you enjoyed whatever it is you just heard. Heartwarming interviews, tear-jerking stories,
2: magnificent music, and the sound of our voices.
1: Because God knows that this is the best content on the airwaves. Don't forget to follow YOLO on all their social medias at YOLO Cali. And you can find all our audio content on SoundCloud, Mixcloud, and Apple Podcasts. We bougie like that. Here we well, that's it. Bye. See you next Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. for another episode of... <laughs>